It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. We were discouraged with all the negativity in the world and decided to focus on finding some good out there. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast with me, Teresa. And me, Amy. We're two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. Hey, Teresa. Um, what was your high and low for last week? For last week? It's yeah. been crazy busy. I know. And I'm sad that it's staying dark later in the morning and getting dark earlier at night. It's August. So I know I'm not ready for summer to be over, but... Low was probably the Olivia Newton-John oh, news. Yeah, I know. I had a girlfriend text me that, you know, she's also a breast cancer survivor. And, and when Kelly Preston passed, yeah. I was pretty upset. And then she yeah. was like, this has thrown me for a loop. But she texted me this saying, we might know what we'll die from, but we aren't going to die today or even this year. No one's getting out of here alive, my friend. And I just, oh, I thought that was really yeah. a good reminder right. for all of us. Yeah, for so, sure. Yeah, that was definitely a sad point to the week, but um, I got to babysit my nephews. Oh, so that was super fun. Yeah. Busy, lots of energy, and I miss my kids being that age. I but know. the middle one said I was a grandma. Oh. <laughs> so, so, not as young as I think I am. Oh, you are. But it was you fun. Are. They're funny at that age. <laughs> oh. I have two quick updates. In episode 88, we went on a field trip to Eugene, Oregon. Oh, yeah where we interviewed mm-hmm. Amy Loban of Tara Pockham Winery. We had so much fun talking to her while sipping that brute. That was yes. so much fun. Beautiful day, too. It, it was gorgeous. It was, And it was awesome to hear about how her and her husband, Andrew Winery's mission is to bring awareness and advocacy to those with disabilities. I just saw an Instagram post where they now have Braille menus. Oh, and awesome. It, it's so cool. It's like, again, another testament to their hearts to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. I guess they had some problems printing. I'm using a Thermofax printer that heats and bursts bubbles mm-hmm. and special paper to generate dots, creating Braille. Well, it almost burned their house down, but fortunately figured it out. So I just love how they're constantly looking for ways to be inclusive. Yeah, and, and always thinking ahead. Ahead, exactly. How can they help more people? That's awesome. And the other one, in episode 92, we talked about the Bush twins. And I just saw the segment on the Today Show. I know you're sick of the Today Show, but never, um, never, never. Jenna's was talking about her youngest Hal, who turned three on August second. Actually, shares a birthday. Lucy's is oh. August second. She turned eighteen. But I guess Jenna was asking Hal what he wanted to do for his birthday, and he said, "Just family, no friends." He just said, "Amila, Poppy, Mommy, Daddy." I just, you know, and I just love to see mm-hmm. that the value of family yeah. in the legacy and simplicity. Um, yeah, of, so of cute. What he wants his desires. That's adorable. It makes me sad, frankly, angry to read about the hate and dissension in our country. Mm-hmm. All it, over, it directed at different groups of people, but especially when it's directed at our youth. Uh, And it's even more depressing when I hear about it firsthand about teens I know. Uh, Recently, I heard two about two situations where teens in the LGBTQ community were verbally attacked. In one case, said directly to them. And then in the other case, it was via text on a semi-private chat line, you know, so totally not okay. Mm -hmm. But the worst part is the suicide rate for the LGBTQ teens is between five and 10% higher than heterosexual youth. 
I'm actually surprised it isn't higher than yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Because I know that um, they're just hit from all over. All over. Now. Um, and I just, I just saw a segment on the local news about Clark County's Teen Talk, which is so awesome. They're a non-judgmental peer-to-peer support line. I love that they describe themselves as a warm line on their website. They don't judge because they believe everyone deserves respect and kindness. They're offering support in a variety of topics. Here are just a few, depression, anxiety, LGBTQ, family, friends, school, sports, and health issues. They started as a result of information gathered by Clark County's uh, Youth Suicide Prevention Task Force. The youth that were interviewed stressed the importance of having someone in their peer group to talk about difficult issues. The teen volunteers complete 32 hours of training prior to supporting peers, which provides them with themes with information about many issues that teens are facing today. They offer many ways teens in crisis can connect with them, phone, text, email, message anonymously, ask Peppy, uh, who's their mascot cartoon, using um, the at Peppy Pennerson at all, on all socials. You can do it anonymously. They also have an app you can download, too, which is pretty cool. The teen talk coordinator facilitates youth mental health first aid courses, teaching a five-step action plan to offer initial help to teens with signs and symptoms of mental illness that are in crisis. The Teen Talk staff coordinates monthly I Work With Teens community meetings to build partnerships and offer educational workshops geared toward youth-serving programs. They also do community presentations in schools and youth organizations. Really cool that it's run by teens for teens. I mean, what an awesome outreach program. In our backyard, uh, Vancouver, yeah, Washington, Clark County, yeah. Vancouver, Washington, making a difference in our youth. I just love the, the warm one. Oh, That's I know. That's so cute. Yeah. Of, yeah. Good idea. This is episode 94. And we are talking about an unlikely friendship be- between President Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen. I saw this book, Renegades, Born in the USA, by President Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen. I could not resist. <laughs> I'm a fan of both of these men. Very different guys. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I remember when Obama won the 2008 election. I was full of so much hope. I think we all were. Um, we had an inauguration party. Oh, wow. Have yeah. you ever had Obama chili? Oh, no. Okay, neither have we because I forgot the chili powder, but oh. everything else was Obama chili-like. Oh, and, cool. Uh, yeah, I need to pull out that yeah. recipe and try it again. That's very cool. I was even a bit emotional, and I'm not sure because maybe it was just, I just had Ellie a few months prior, so maybe it's the hormones. Mm-hmm. But anyways, it was an exciting time to have a man, an amazing man, leading our country I liked his views and how he spoke about his vision of America. And, of course, you can't underscore the significance of him being the first black president. And just the hope. The hope that that we can do it. Right. Inclusive. Right. That he brought. And I've been a fan of the boss since high school. My friend Mahasti and I went to Bruce Springsteen, Born in the USA, tour back in 1984. Recently, I looked up the ticket prices and we were texting, but it was $15 back then compared to like 252 Yeah, and those are the cheap seats. Those are cheap seats. I think those are those people that are pre-authorized. Right. At fan early. early. Yeah. Otherwise, I think they're in the thousands. But Mahasi and I borrowed, I say that in air quotes, <laughs> craft paper from our high school and made a sign that said, Baby, we were born to run. The concert was a total blast. We held up the sign during Born to Run. And Bruce is an amazing performer. He gives his all to the audience, jumping, dancing. I mean, he works hard. So all it's this only what keeps him young though. and keeps him fit, yeah, yeah, for sure. 
So all this being said, I was curious about these two men, you know, unlikely friendship. Well, it began during the rallies for 2008 uh, presidential election. Upon meeting Bruce Springsteen, President Obama commented that he was surprised how shy and reserved uh, he was. And then, of, of co- over the course of the rallies and his years in presidency, they formed a friendship that grew from casual conversations to deeper ones. They realized that even though they come from different walks of life, their view of how they saw America was the same. This book came about in 2020 as a way to talk about the current division in America, stemming from the pandemic to racial injustice. These events tore, you know, at the heart of American people, leaving them to grapple with institutions of faith and family, the legacy of slavery and racism. And we're still. We're still. still. We're still torn up. So Barack and Bruce sat down to talk about how we got here as a country and also how to bridge the gap between the American ideal and reality. They met at Bruce's barn uh, studio in New Jersey, surrounded by a thousand guitars. I love that image. (laughs) Barn studio, it sounds like an oxymoron right yeah. there because, yeah. That's... But, and sometimes they took a break to ride in the countryside in Bruce's vintage Corvette <laughs> that was way too small for President Obama, six foot two frame. Thing that's funny, so I did read um, Obama's book, and when he was dating Michelle Obama, his first car, he'd take her around on dates, they could see the ground. Oh, wow. Like it was rusted through the bottom. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, this was a big difference. Yeah. Because... Yeah. Bruce talked about what a wonderful experience he had playing at Barack's rallies and appearances. He specifically talked about feeling grateful for the diversity, black and white faces in the audience, something Bruce had always dreamed about. Bruce said one of the most thrilling moments was when he performed the song Promised Land with Jay-Z. The lyrics come out of Christian faith, out of the gospel, out of the Bible, and it transcends cultural lines. Barack even told Bruce, maybe you could have been a preacher. (laughs) I love, you know, as they talk, they realize that they are striving for the same thing in their own way. Bruce through his music and Barack through his politics. Which that's how we all are. Yeah. So it's great to see. Coming from some place and then finding a common yeah. ground. Their backgrounds differ for sure. Barack born in 1961 in Honolulu, Hawaii, and Bruce born in 1949 in Freehold, New Jersey. So there's 12 years difference between the two. Bruce grew up in a small town of around 10,000 people, 1,600 of whom worked at Kara Guzin Rug Mill, including his dad. Uh, However, his mom was the breadwinner since his dad suffered from schizophrenia since he was young. It made him difficult for him to work on on a regular basis and also made home life difficult. Sure. Whereas Barack's mom was a young teen from Kansas who met his dad, an African student at the University of Hawaii. The funny thing is they both have Irish grandparents. I thought that was an interesting hmm. thing. Barack grew up with a mix of immigrants who came from different places, Japan, China, Portugal, who came to America as seamen, and then they're the, also the local Hawaiians. Mm-hmm. He talked about living in this beautiful place and culture, but nobody looked like him. Uh, Bruce talked about his memories of freehold, that looked like a Norman Rockwell painting, a small town where there were Memorial Day parades, veterans of foreign war marches, American Legion, American flags. Bruce said he felt like he belonged to something special, and he had a sense that we were a blessed country. Bruce's grandparents lived with his family and helped raise him. I guess they were pretty lenient, letting him stay up later than most of his friends, and he didn't really fit in with the rules at school. 
Bruce talked about how racist Freehold was in the 1950s and how it suffered from racial strife like many other parts of the country during the 1960s. Bruce said he loved these people even with their limitations, and it inspired him to write um, the song My Hometown about the town he grew up in and how the town was struggling with its boarded-up businesses. The beginning of the demise of the, of the businesses in Freehold started with a shooting at a stoplight where a car full of white kids shot at a car full of black kids. One of Bruce's friends lost his eye. It led to race rioting and businesses being shut down. Bruce talked about how the race riots were a long time coming and that the black population of the town weren't represented. It took a long time for the town to recover. Barack talked about his upbringing was also unusual. Racism wasn't up in his grill. There were no riots in Hawaii. There was no other side of town where blacks lived. He definitely experienced folks' ignorance and slights. He talked about playing tennis. He was quite good, good enough to play in the tournaments. He would look at the list of participants for the tournament and run his finger down looking for his name. The high school tennis coach would say, you better be careful. You might rub off on the chart and make it dirty. This, I mean, I just... Is unconscionable yeah. thing to say. And Barack turned... And that he would actually think that. that yeah, yeah. And verbalize that yeah. and say that. Barack turned and said, what did you say? Which I think is so awesome mm-hmm. and brave. The coach said, oh, he was just joking. And I'm like, really? I... It's really hard. He, yeah. He was not coaching for long. That's... Yeah, totally. His mom did her best to help him feel blessed to have beautiful brown skin. She would bring him kid version of biographies like on Muhammad Ali or Arthur Ashe. Um, Arthur Ashe was the first black tennis player selected to the United States Davis Cup team, the only black man ever to win singles title at Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, and the Australian Open. I'm glad you explained that because I know Muhammad Ali, but I did not know Arthur Ashe. Yeah. So she, she wanted him to feel loved and proud of being black. Barack and his mom started having conversations about both feeling like outsiders which later became part of his politics and part of his speeches that America is a place where you don't have to look a certain way, you don't have to come from a certain family, and you don't have to have a certain religious background. As he put it, you have to have a fidelity to a creed, a belief. He gave this speech at the 50th anniversary of the march across Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. He was there at Selma with John Lewis, George W. Bush, and many others. He said in his speech that on one side you have this idea that, no, America is just for certain people who look and act a certain way. On the other side, led by a 25-year-old kid in a trench coat and knapsack who said, America's for everybody. It just gives me goosebumps. I know. The draft of Obama's speech is in the book. It is type, like all a lot of his speeches. Mm -hmm. And I love looking at the handwritten edits that he'd go through and change Does it. Does he have messy handwriting? Or no, pretty, pretty nice. Oh, okay. Pretty nice. I loved in one part he wrote, we respect the past, but we don't pine for it. We don't fear the future. We grab for it. America is not some fragile thing. He later goes on to say, 239 years after this nation's founding, our union is not yet perfect, but we are getting closer. Our jobs are easier because somebody already got us through that first mm-hmm. mile. Somebody already got us over that bridge, which is, yeah. So true. Barack and Bruce, they talked about that moment 
I'm an American, and that's part of my identity. Bruce said for him, it was St. Rose School, where every day at 8 a.m., facing the flag with your right hand over your heart. He He identified himself as and thought there was a sacredness about being American. How about you? Do you have any moments where you felt like, oh, yeah. I honestly, as sad as it is, without just parroting the yeah. you know, Pledge of Allegiance and all of that, I would have to say 9-11. Oh, yeah. Because I love how this country came together, united front, supported each other. And that made me feel very, very yeah. patriotic. I still am very patriotic, even though I agree with both of these guys. We have a long ways to go as far as improving our country. But. Right. Yeah, for me, it was the bicentennial year, 1976. I just uh-huh. felt like it was just a time of celebration, and I just remember we all wearing a whole bunch of red, white, and blue, and having some knee highs with some pom-poms on it <laughs> that I loved. But yeah. Too bad you don't have them. I wish I had them. For Barack, he talked about the space program. The capsules mm-hmm. landed with those parachutes in the middle of the Pacific. Um, they were brought to Hawaii, and as a young kid sitting on his grandfather's shoulders with American flag in his hand watching. Bruce talked about the feeling of disillusionment of America during the Vietnam War, a loss of innocence. He and two other guys in the band got drafted. He didn't want to go to war. I mean, like whatever it took. He didn't believe in the war. He had seen his friends die. He didn't want to die. Bruce had been in a horrible uh, motorcycle accident about seven months prior and suffered a concussion, so they rejected him from the armed services. Thank goodness. Yeah. For Brock, he talked about, you know, Growing up in the 70s in Hawaii, there wasn't an active war when he was of draft age. Mm-hmm. So he talked about the music of the time. It's kind of funny. He, he loves Stevie Wonder, Top 40, Casey Kasem. Oh, I forgot about Casey Kasem. I know. Billy Paul, Me and, Miss, mm-hmm. me and Mrs. Jones. Remember mm-hmm. that song? Mm-hmm. And he loved uh, Joni Mitchell, um, Ohio Brothers, or Players, excuse me, and Parliament, just to name a few. And he said now he listens to hip-hop because of his daughter's influence. Oh, it's oh, pretty, pretty cute. Adorable. Uh, Barack asked Bruce about his music, and Bruce picked up the guitar at 15, and his musical influences were the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Sam and Dave, they were an R&B duo, and then Motown. He said, when he holds a guitar, he feels like it's part of him, an appendage. Bruce's philosophy, he's going to give the best to bring out the best in his audience, and he kind of thinks about it as his ministry. When Bruce started the E Street Band back in 1974, it was integrated. Bruce said it really started with Clarence Clements, who was the best sax player he'd ever heard. Clarence jumped on stage one night and started playing, and the rest is history. At the time, there were three black guys and three white guys, and it kind of changed over the years. Bruce said it just sort of happened. Bruce talked about shortly after forming the band how Clarence, an iconic figure of the E Street band. He was a side man, and Bruce was the front man. Then one night, Bruce said, come stand next to me for the song, and the crowd went crazy, and that's how oh, they've always God. been. And I love the Born to Run cover. It is a photograph, and it looks like Bruce is whispering something into Clarence's ear. Bruce wanted to, to tell wanted the album to tell a story. The inside of the cover shows Bruce and Clarence side by side. It told the story of their pursuit of musical version of the beloved community. Bruce talked about how his friendship with Clarence was like none other. They spent 40 years together. Wow. He said the one thing they didn't kid themselves about was race didn't matter. They traveled across the United States. They were as close as two people could be. Now, did they not kid themselves about that because they it, saw they it? Saw they, it. it. Okay. they saw it. They saw it. And sadly, 
Uh, Clarence died in 2011. Barack and Bruce talk about the legacy of race is buried, and it's always there. Barack said that John Lewis embodied a particular brand of courage. Uh, it had trust in the redemptive power. John Lewis said, here I stand, do your worst. I believe that at some point there is a conscience that will be awakened, that there is a force in you that will see me. Barack said he wrote something similar in his eulogy for John Lewis. He said, John, these are your children. They may not known it, but you gave birth to that sense of right and wrong in them. You helped infuse them with expectation that we're better than we are. That is why Barack encourages protesters and activism as long as there's no violence. He expects young people to push those boundaries. And as Bruce chimed in, stir shit up. Bruce posed the question. Keeping it real. Keeping it real. Totally. He posed the question, how do we hold the idea that the same country that sent a man to the moon is the country of Jim Crow? Barack said, as a country, we never went through a true reckoning. We just buried it. Which is so true. True, yeah. I mean, he said that reparations are justified, that a significant part of the wealth in this country was built on the backs of slaves. Jim Crow was the continuation of systemic oppression of black people, which resulted in black families not being able to build up generational wealth, not being able to compete for future generations. Where is the justice for the descendants of those who suffered those kinds of terrible, cruel, arbitrary injustices? I mean, some sort of compensation. Barack said that a meaningful reparations program is a non-starter, but potentially counterproductive. As president, he said the best way to move forward for African Americans is to frame it as, let's make sure all kids get a good education. Let's make sure all people get good health care. We're a wealthy enough country that everybody should be able to get a job and pay a living wage. Absolutely agree. And I love that he keeps it positive with, let's look ahead. Let's look ahead. How can we make this country better? And he's framing it because he says, if you frame it with a specific uh, racial group, that has done wrong in the past. Mm -hmm. And then it is more likely to get a majority. So this is also, you know, talking about bridging the gap between America as it is and the American ideal. The ideal of America is worthy. As Barack stated, it takes honest accounting and hard work. Another part of their conversation was about class. Bruce said he grew up in a middle-of-the-middle-class neighborhood, and he felt on par with everybody else. Bruce said he didn't feel victimized because you knew you were aware of some class differences. Barack talked about growing up in a 1,200-square-foot apartment in Honolulu, his grandparents raised him from about 10 on. He said his grandmother was a pink-collar worker. I've never heard of that. Yeah. She started at the bank. She didn't go to college, and she ended up becoming the vice president of the bank. His grandfather was a salesman, so they were low-end income but middle class in Hawaii. They wanted him to go to college, so they sacrificed for him to go to prep school. Brock said when he moved to Chicago in 1983 and worked as a community organizer, he saw that shift in how capitalism works and its effect on class. People's wages were stagnating and the inequalities were getting greater. And they also talked about the, that was the beginning of that kind of media that like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous introduced. Do you remember that show? I remember it. I don't think I ever watched a single episode. It, Obviously, we didn't watch it. We didn't it. watch it, but it really brings that culture of materialism yeah. into people's homes. Mm-hmm. But 
I think we have it even more so today with social media, which led to the discussion about financial success. And Bruce said at some point he questioned himself, feeling rootless, disassociated, and afraid of losing who he was and where he belonged. He said how awful he felt when he bought his first home in an upscale neighborhood in New Jersey. He said to himself, what the blank? (laughs) And I've lost my blanking mind. You know, it then turns out, though, he and his wife ended up living there for 30 years and raising their three kids. Solid. Solid. And I think that's why he stayed true to the theme of his music being about spirituality and the idea of community as religion, which has really grounded him. Barack shared his concern of losing touch and being part of the consumer engine. He said it requires you to step back and get some perspective. He goes on to say it's important to remind ourselves the feeling of connection is what matters. He talks about those at the top need to recognize what's going to make people a happy living in a healthy, fair society. Brock said the policy fixes are necessary because then the country starts telling a different story, a shift from the 80s idea of greed is good. I love, too, Michelle Obama. She was one yeah. shocked to Target. Right. I mean, she had no problem right. being a regular suburb mom. You know. Exactly. I, I love so. that. As they continued to talk, they kept finding themselves back to where they started. What will it take to restore faith in America? Brock said this desire started for him when running for president. The campaign takes you all over the country. It's a bit overwhelming. He talked about the joy of running for president. He said you visit 50 states, meeting people of every walk of life and every station. He said he saw a a, a running thread between us, a link or bond that was common among conservatives and liberals. He said there's a common set of assumptions and what we're arguing about of the contradictions in ourselves. He also pointed out that America is the only nation on earth made up of people from everywhere, every faith, every race, every background, every station. It's kind of crazy when you think about it in those I'm still, terms. I'm still such a loaded... It's um, so crazy. Yeah. It's, and the U.S. is kind of like an experiment. Can we make it work? Can this democracy work? Brock said if they could get it right that that would be a good thing. The recognition and dignity of all people, everybody having an opportunity, every child being able to become president, anybody being able to make it, if they try. Mm -hmm. If that were true, man, that would be good. Barack talked about our job is to help create the bridge for the next generation. Bruce agreed and said, your children force you to be optimistic. It's their world that you're handing over now. Love that. True. I love this. I'm, on, of course, as usual, just highlighting some of the parts of the book that kind of jumped out at me. There is some meatier topics that deserve deeper discussion. This was an awesome read, and I love their conversations. It really gave me a window into their character and inspired me to think more deeply about the issues dividing our country and the possibilities. I, and I love that he said, you know, talked about it as being an experiment, because right. that does make me very patriotic to think... We're the we only do, ones yeah. doing this. And we want to make it work. Yeah. We want to show that we can all get along and make this country better. I think everyone should read this book. It it has a couple of uh, President Obama speeches, which are really fun to read, and some wonderful photographs of both of them and their families. It left me hopeful for what America could be. And it's really about conversations, digging deep, opening your hearts and minds to our fellow humans, and maybe just being a bridge. Love that. Awesome. Awesome. 
So we're going to do something new. Ask a question. What does patriotism mean to you? Send us a, yeah, send us yeah. a note. We'd love to know. Um, We'd love to hear from you for sure. At our tangentialinspiration.com or Gmail, tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or some of the socials too. Yeah. Pessimism and optimism are slammed up against each other in my records. The tension between them is where it's all at. It's what lights the fire. Bruce Springsteen. So if you've listened to our podcast for a while, you know we love inspiring stories. Yeah. About underdog stories, about people making comebacks, and of course the environment, nature, and animals. And I wanted to touch on some recent stories that involve all three. Oh, good. My husband and I are animal lovers. I know that when we go running and yeah. stop for the geese, stop for the dog, yeah. stop for any type of critter out there. But um, we also raised three boys who love nature as well. Our oldest son has always been heavily into nature and has a deep passion for animals. More recently planned. <laughs> well, that's nature. <laughs> we are surrounded by plants, but one of his heroes is Sir David Attenborough. Have you watched any of the shows? No, but his voice is, right, is, yeah. Yeah. He has a new one right now. Yeah, all of them are really good, but I keep inviting Zach to come do an episode. Yeah, I thought he was yeah. going to do that. Yeah, I know. He's, He's going says, to. Yes. It's coming. Yes, in the future. But he does these beautiful documentaries about the natural world, this love of animals and plants through kind of a double-edged sword, while the natural world brings him so much joy, and he's passionate about it, it distresses him to see how much damage us humans are doing to the world, to the places that he loves. Right, yeah. From expanding urban growth and farmland into sensitive natural areas to overhunting and fishing to chemicals and plastics being released into the environment. Catastrophic damage, climate change, what it's doing to the natural world. And so many young people like him are worried about the world that's being left to them. So there are a few stories about nature comebacks that show if given the chance and sometimes a little help, we can help move progress in the right direction. In Australia, which I'm dying to go to. Yeah, oh, I want to go there. Yeah. The Great Barrier Reef is showing signs of recovery. It's been hit hard in the last decade from storm damage, pollution, and climate change. There have been several coral bleaching events that damage the reefs. While coral looks like a rocky structure, coral are actually a variety of small marine animals that form colonies that build what we consider to be coral reefs. Oh, okay. Zach will love the segment. Yeah. He's, he's all <laughs> Each coral polyp excretes an exoskeleton, which forms the rocky substance of the reef. And there are hundreds of types of coral, which make up the gorgeous and colorful structures of the reef. Reefs are vital habitats to hundreds of types of fish and even apex predators like sharks, which you know I love. Um, coral bleaching occurs when the coral polyps are stressed by their environment, oh. which is usually changes in light. Temperatures, okay, seeing, yeah, or the available nutrients. The coral expels the symbiotic algae that lives in their tissue, and that causes the coral to turn completely white. Coral doesn't necessarily have you seen the pictures of all of like I have, I have not seen it, no. Um, coral doesn't necessarily die when bleaching events happen, but often it does lead to coral deaths. Coral can recover if given time and if the stress of the coral is lessened. The Great Barrier Reef has experienced significant bleaching and coral death, which has been mostly attributed to storm damage and climate change. But increased water temperatures caused the climate change that has stressed the coral with several major bleaching events over the past two decades, 
with four of them occurring in the last seven years. So relatively oh, wow. quickly. Now for the comeback part. Yay. Cor- I just have to lay yeah. out the problem. Coral uh, covers. Coral cover has improved significantly. They bounced back about two-thirds of the Great Barrier Reef. Just to give you an idea of how big an area of the Great yeah. Barrier Reef covers, it's more than 133,000 square miles, making it the <sighs> biggest coral reef system in the world. That's why we want to go. The northern and central sections of the reef have the highest levels of coral that they cover, uh, the coral that covers recorded since they started monitoring coral over 36 years ago. Oh. So they've yeah. been watching it a while. For a while, yeah. The southern section is still experiencing trouble, but mostly because of the highly invasive crown thorns starfish, which eats coral. While the reef is still at risk from climate change and storms, the growth is promising for the reef's That's recovery. Cool. A very rare bird sighting has excited bird watchers across the globe when a bird that was thought to possibly be extinct was unexpectedly rediscovered in Columbia. The saber wing has been, you know, they've kind of talked about it. They're not sure if it really was a thing. Only found in Columbia, the bird has only been documented twice before. The first documented sighting was in 1946. Wow. Right before Bruce Springsteen was born. <laughs> and the next documented sighting was in 2010. The Santa Maria saber wing is so elusive, it was included in the top 10 most wanted lost birds and was thought by many to be extinct. Jurgen Vega was working with a group to study birds in the Sierra Nevada mountains in Columbia. The small hummingbird caught his eye and he whipped out his binoculars, which I need to get some because I took yeah, the little one yeah, yeah. to get a good look. And he was shocked to see a saber wing. Luckily, it perched on a branch, and he was able to get a few pictures Ooh. so he could prove it. Yeah. The bird is gorgeous. The region of the saber wing was found that it's a critically important environmental area, and seeing this extremely rare bird emphasizes the importance of protecting these areas. Yeah. A group that has spent the last 20 years trying to reintroduce cheetahs to India is finally getting their wish. Cheetahs, who were once native to India, haven't been seen there in 70 years. Cheetahs in India were killed off by hunters and the destruction of habitat. 20 cheetahs will be relocated from South Africa to Nambia to India as an attempt to reintroduce cheetahs to India. The animals have been microchipped and will be monitored oh, after the release. Very cool. So high good te- with yeah. science. Yeah, yeah high tech very is cool. right. They'll be released in the Kuno National Park, which is one of India's wildlife sanctuaries. The group's planning on introducing some more cheetahs into the park if the first group adapts well. So hopeful. Very cool. The Galapagos Islands have long well, been I have seen that on TV. Um, I love that. Long been famous. I, I don't know that I need to go there, but. Yeah, um, it's fun to watch. Yeah, oh, I yes. love. Oh, definitely. Fun. They've been famous for their biodiversity and exotic animals. Right, for right. sure. Charles Darwin did many of his observations that supported his theory of evolution on the island chain. One of the largest islands is Santiago. When Darwin first came to the island in 1835, it had a huge population of land iguanas, and this might be why I'm not yeah. yeah. Um, however, with the early explorers came other invasive animals, and the land iguana population of Santiago was destroyed by dogs and feral pigs oh. that were introduced to the island by explorers. The last land iguana was spotted on Santiago Island 187 years ago, so a long time ago. Wow. Some of the land iguanas survived on one remote island, but everywhere that people settled, yeah. the land iguana was killed off. Aww. Three years ago, the Galapagos National Park Authority decided to reintroduce the land iguana 
to Santiago. They released 3,000 of the iguanas onto the island, and they seem to be thriving. Oh, great. A recent study shows the transplant population is healthy and thriving. This is just a great example of how people can intervene and undo some of the damage that we've, you know, inadvertently caused. Also in the Galapagos Islands, this I heard from Zach. Yeah. In 2019, they discovered a giant tortoise. The last one was found in 1906. The return of the species thought extinct to the region are both exciting and give conservationists hope. Two more quick stories from the U.S. Sea turtles have been found laying eggs in Mississippi for the first time since 2018. This nesting site was immediately roped off and is being protected. And while a sea turtle can lay 60 to 100 eggs at a time, I know, holy moly, in its nest, it's estimated that only one in 10,000 sea turtles reach full maturity. The East Coast has been hit with some really damaging storms, as we know, in the last few years, and habitats. The turtles, once used for nesting, in some cases, have just disappeared. So the return back is encouraging. Finally, Nebraska was once home to huge populations of bighorn sheep. Overhunting, loss of habitat, and disease have pretty much wiped out the bighorn sheep there. A group of wildlife biologists have been trying to restart the population over the last 40 years. And while the progress has been slow going, a recent study conducted using drones, once again, technology. More technology, that's awesome. In the rugged hills of Nebraska, biologists found a healthy herd of about 320 bighorn sheep. So some of these seem, you know, like pretty minor wins, but the bigger picture is that we can reintroduce species back into their former habitats. It's all part of the chain. Yeah, we need it. We do. We need them all. Exactly. (laughs) Even the iguanas. Yeah. And we get those animals to thrive. This can be vital to saving our ecosystems, particularly ones that have gotten out of whack from our, you know, interference. Abuse. Exactly. If we keep having these little wins, the net result could be huge for our planet and very hopeful for our kids. Oh, I love that. Nothing can stand in the way of power of millions of voices calling for change. Barack Obama. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com. Or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.